2: I'm Nuria Martinez-Keel. And I'm Kayla Branch. You're listening to The Source. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the Oklahomans' most impactful stories with the reporters who wrote them. This week, a White House coronavirus report reveals Oklahoma is in the red zone. And could concerns over the United States Post Office impact Oklahoma elections?
1: Joining us to discuss the White House reports is state government reporter Carmen Foreman. Carmen, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, Carmen, these reports indicate that Oklahoma is in a serious situation with the rate of COVID-19 infections. So, what is the White House saying about our current status?
3: Um, Yeah, so they just, uh, they release a report every week, and um, for roughly, since roughly mid-June, they've been saying we're in the red zone for uh, coronavirus cases. And basically, they have three different zones. um, And red is obviously the worst. Um, And we're in the red zone because we have, you know, more than 100 cases per 100,000 population. And um, so like this week, or I guess they took data from last week, To put in the report that was released this week, Um, it was 123 um, COVID-19 cases per 100,000 population in Oklahoma. Um, So that's the basics, sort of, of the report. Uh, But then it also gives a lot more details about our um, percentage of test positivity, and like the most current report says that we're eighth in the U.S. for tests like highest test positivity. So that's, you know, not exactly where we wanna be. Um, Last week, I think we were 11th or 12th in test positivity. So um, 11th or 12th highest. So we're getting worse, which is not a good sign. Um, And then also, you know, the, the reports kinda highlight some localities and stuff that are, you know, also in dangerous territory, if you will.
2: These reports, and and there are nine of these reports, correct? Yes. So these nine reports date back to midsummer. And there was controversy recently when local public health and elected officials realized that Governor Kevin Stitt's administration had the reports but wasn't making them public. So, Carmen, could you detail the pressure that mounted and eventually forced Stitt to release the reports. Yeah, I think it it all kind of happened
3: very quickly. And I think part of the catalyst was um, Dr. Deborah Birx's visit to Oklahoma. So she visited um, on a Sunday. And I think at that meeting, which was not open to the press, so I can't tell you for sure. um, I think at that meeting, she gave some indication that uh, there had been eight different reports at that point that had been sent to the state of Oklahoma and, um, you know, the governor's office. And some of the folks who represented localities, uh, namely Mayor G.T. Bynum of Tulsa, I think that kind of clicked off a light in his head. And he was like, wait, there've been eight of these? Like, he, he had said later in the week that he was only aware of one that had previously been leaked to the press um, by the Center uh, and then published by the Center for Public Integrity. Um, And so he had no idea that there were eight of them. And so he kind of said, well, why why aren't we getting these? Uh, We should be getting them, especially since they have recommendations for localities that are in um, precarious uh, positions. And has
1: Stitt Said why he, you know, wasn't releasing these reports that clearly show Oklahoma is having problems and so far is kind of on a downward
3: trend in terms of how we're doing with the virus. So he ha- he never said why the reports weren't released. Um, he said that more recently that the reports had been released to both Oklahoma City and Tulsa, and I put in a records request with the health department, and it does show that um, last week. Um, after Dr. Burks's visit, um, that the the eighth report was sent to the Tulsa Health Department, um, to Dr. Bruce Dart there. Uh, I'm not sure why it didn't make its way to Mayor Bynum, but that doesn't, that, I mean, these reports go back to June. And so there hasn't been an explanation for why these reports haven't been going to the localities the whole time. Um, If you look at some of the earlier reports, they really just they're kind of bare bones, it seems like they were figuring out, the, the White House Task Force was kind of figuring out what they were trying to do with these reports, and so it doesn't have a lot of locality-specific stuff. It's more focused on the state. And then as the reports progress, they get more detailed, there's more information for the localities, and so I could see, you know, why the localities and the mayors and, um,
2: you know, county commissioners
3: and all that, why they want to see them.
2: And how might this have changed things for those local officials if they had these reports sooner? What have they said they might have done differently or how would this have helped them if they had access to these reports? Yeah, that's a great question.
3: Um, So a a good example might be that um, about two weeks before Oklahoma City implemented a mask mandate, the reports recommended that um, localities with high transmission, of which Oklahoma City and Oklahoma County were both considered high transmission, red zone areas, um, they recommended that those localities sort of require people to wear masks. And so, you know, Oklahoma City was already going down that path. But, um, you know, there there was a very long city council meeting um, in well, actually, I think there were a couple city council meetings in which all the data was sort of presented as to, uh, to the city councilors as to why, you know, mask mandate might be helpful. And if you think about it, you know, this, these reports could have been presented and said, look, the White House, um, they think this is best for us, especially... You know, if you think about the political dynamics of the whole thing, when the city council was taking the vote, before they voted to adopt the mask mandate, they took, you know, hours of calls, virtual calls, on people who spoke their piece for and against the mask mandates. And I think we've seen a lot of the folks that are against the mask mandates are those who tend to be more conservative, tend to be more likely Republicans, and, I mean, really, This information is coming from the White House, the Trump White House. He's a Republican. You'd think that might assuage some of their fears, maybe, or it might get them to um, be more comfortable with the idea of a mask mandate if they know that Trump's White House and Trump's top, you know, coronavirus experts are recommending it. Right. Well,
1: and now that these reports are released and we can see the progression of COVID-19 in Oklahoma over the summer and how infections became more prevalent. I mean, and we know that the mask mandates were part of the recommendations. But when you were going over these reports, how did you see the recommendations kind of change as Oklahoma's cases have gotten worse? And what other recommendations have been included?
3: Um, yeah, so I would say that the reports have maybe gotten a little more urgent, um, and what were merely suggestions at the at the beginning are now more like, "No, you you need to do this." I mean, it's it doesn't say like Governor Stitt, implement a mask mandate. It doesn't say that, but you know, it's more forceful in its language, um, and some of the other recommendations are you know based on you know, dining indoors and outdoors, and whether localities, especially those with high transmission of COVID-19, should be allowing people to eat inside restaurants as opposed to, you know, maybe just on the patio or maybe just offering to-go services. There have been recommendations about bars, um, about maybe limiting the hours so bars aren't open at 2 a.m. and, you know, packed to the brim, or even just closing bars altogether, uh, there's also been recommendations about, uh, large group gatherings, small group gatherings. Um, you know, at first they were kind of saying like, limit your large group gatherings, don't have large in-person events. And now they're kind of saying like, yeah, if you're, if you got more than 10 people, at something it, we're really not comfortable with that. So it kind of spans the spectrum and, um, you know, there are recommendations for the state and then some of those, you know, about bars, dining, in-person events some of those apply well or recommendations for the localities as well um so you know i saw over the weekend that the governor um i can't remember exactly where but he was at like a rodeo which um you know looked like fun and he uh he rode out the flag at the beginning of the rodeo um but i did notice that you know in the background of the picture there are there were a lot of people there and um it was in one of the counties that was being recommended to limit its um, in-person events and social gatherings.
2: Recently, Stitt met with White House Coronavirus Task Force member Dr. Deborah Burks. Stitt's administration barred the press from covering the meeting or from talking with Burks. Then Stitt said Dr. Burks was complimentary of Oklahoma's handling of the pandemic, and he said that she had no recommendations for the state to change anything. With these reports recommending that bars be closed and a statewide mandate be put in place for things like masks, uh, things, st- things that Governor Stitt said he will not do, how can that be true that Dr. Burks didn't have any recommendations at all when these reports are directly counteracting that?
3: From what I have been told by the governor's office and other folks who were at that meeting with Dr. Burks, this these reports apparently did not come up. Though it, it's sort of contradicted by the fact that Dr. Burks had mentioned that there had been eight reports, and that sort of tipped off Mayor Bynum, like, oh hey, I need to ask about these reports later because there have been eight of them. So to some degree, they were mentioned, but it's not clear to me. Um, it's, uh, the governor's office said that the recommendations in the report were not talked about. Um, I would also note that I I don't think that it was the state administration that barred the press from the event. I think it was maybe a White House thing. I was basically told that Dr. Burks was trying to fit in multiple meetings the same day, and so she she didn't have time to meet with the press, which, you know, I would say that would only take like five or ten minutes to talk to us, but whom, you know, who am I to judge? Um, anyways, these reports do seem to indicate recommendations that are coming from the White House and are coming to the state and to the governor's office. So while Dr. Burks in that meeting may not have explicitly spelled out recommendations, I think the idea is is that the state of Oklahoma should be implementing, or at least considering some of these things in these reports. And, I, you know, I know that the governor will say, you know, we get the reports, we consider all recommendations that come to us, and we make decisions based on our local data, and what we feel best is best for the state of Oklahoma. Um, so, you know, he may not feel that these recommendations are what's best for Oklahoma. And that's why some of these things like a statewide mask mandate haven't been implemented here. And therein lies the complicated web of how states make their own decisions in the middle of a global pandemic, and no two states will probably make all the same decisions, you know, so.
1: Right. Well, it, it just kind of highlights, I think, for me at least, the political, you mentioned political landscape of the virus, even more so, you know, there's just a lot of different wants and beliefs and uh, There's still, I think, some clashing going on between public health officials, who I saw a story this morning where um, public health officials have basically told Stitt, you know, your new way of color coding um, different districts and counties is actually very unhelpful. We want you to do it this way. And so it seems like there's just still a lot of disagreement about what Oklahoma should be doing uh, to combat COVID-19. Yeah.
3: Unfortunately, like, I I think about it and there's no like one great model that we could represent, like we could look at and say, okay, X state is doing everything right. They've almost all entirely, you know, eliminated the virus. I guess Vermont is, you know, they're doing their own thing and they've, they've got the lowest cases in the country and they're doing a pretty good job. So maybe we look at Vermont, but anyways, you know, it's, it's different kind of governments in every state, you know, um, different power structures, you know, in some states, the governor has more power or less power, and can implement more or less things by himself, or he might have to go to the legislature. And yeah, the whole public health dynamic versus politics, it's just so weird. And then I wonder too, like how much of this just gets caught caught up in um, bureaucracy, you know, like, Mayor Bynum said he, you know, didn't see the latest, the eighth White House report. And, but yet that report was emailed from the State Department of Health to the Tulsa Health Department. So like it could have just gotten lost in somebody's email. Like that's very easy, very possible. And now it's blown into this whole big issue, which it probably rightly should be because, you know, transparency is good, but I don't know. I could go on, but I won't. <laughs> yeah,
2: it, you know it's it's interesting, especially when you hear from other people who were in the room with Dr. Burks. I've spoken with State School Superintendent Joy Hoffmeister, who said Dr. Burks told them that all students and staff in schools should be wearing masks at the minimum. Um, and we've seen uh, health. Experts in the state imploring the governor to implement some kind of statewide mask mandate, whether for the general public uh, or for schools. The governor continues to maintain that he is not going to do that. Um, And just to make absolutely sure, Carmen, um, having seen the public pressure surrounding these reports and just, you know, the public finally seeing what's in them. Are, could we see the governor's stance change, or do you think he's going to stay the course uh, and, and continue with uh, a little bit more laissez-faire uh, approach to this um, with with the coronavirus protocols? That's a really good question,
3: and one that I have thought about to myself a lot, because um, the governor really, I mean, I will say, I think throughout all of this, he's been very adamant about, you know, let's look at the State Department of Health data, let's see what it's showing us. And the fact is, is that I wrote something earlier this week about how they have data that shows cities that have implemented mask mandates are seeing fewer cases. And so I think if we see that trend continue, um, one, that will be a trend that is hard for the governor to ignore. Two, I mean, we're just seeing so many um, school districts that, you know, are just having at at least one incidence of coronavirus and then that leads to you know 10 or 20 students and teachers having to be quarantined i mean at some point somebody has to address that right and like the board of education only has i mean the governor only has so much power over the schools but if he asked the board of education which is mostly made up of his appointees and then superintendent hoffmeister if he asked them to implement a school's mask mandate they would do it um, so I, I don't know. It, I think the governor's opinion could change, but there is a lot of political pressure um, on the other end. I mean, you see governors in other states that are getting sued over mask mandates um, or just simply lawsuits that are saying this isn't legal, this isn't lawful. Um, and then there's just the political pressure of, yeah, it's not great to be the conservative governor who, you know. Forces, you know, people to wear masks. You know, if you want to run for re-election again in two years, you could argue that that hurts you. But it could—you could also argue that that helps you because there are so many people on both sides of the aisle that are calling for that now. Though I will say, you know, it's more the Democrats have been more vocal in that.
2: For sure. Well. Carmen thanks so much for joining us today we appreciate you explaining this issue and and uh, following along with your reporting yeah you're welcome
3: I I don't know if I helped much
1: <laughs> you did this has been a really interesting conversation and I'm I'm very very interested to see what happens in the coming weeks and months
3: yeah it's all a big sort of what if right now but I mean overall like our cases are going down that's a good thing the deaths are sort of starting to spike. Um, but that's sort of delayed from when our cases were a lot higher. So um, somebody in this state is doing something right. And I can't tell you who it is, but something's working. Um, and that's good news for all of us. Question mark? mark. <laughs> yeah, dot, dot, question mark. <laughs> well, thanks so much again, Carmen. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye.
1: Joining us this week is reporter Chris Castile. Chris, thanks for being here.
0: Oh, glad to be here.
1: Now, you have been writing about the current situation with the U.S. Postal Service. And correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to give a little bit of a summary. But you know, earlier this summer, President Donald Trump claimed, uh, with, without a lot of evidence, that mail-in voting generates massive fraud. And now, after some uh, operational changes at the USPS, uh, folks believe that it could be more difficult for mail to be shipped and received on time. And with a record number of folks trying to vote by mail because of the pandemic in the various 2020 elections, clearly that poses a problem. Is that a pretty accurate summary of what's
0: going on? It is. I, the one, I guess, the one one thing I might say about is is the president kind of tailors his criticism of voting to his own situation. Um, you know, he he wants to say now that he's all of his criticism has been about universal mail-in balloting or mail-in voting, and that is when a um, state, and there's just a handful of them, send every registered voter a ballot, whether they requested one or not. And that's the distinction that some people make between you know, that kind of universal balloting, where everybody gets a universal mail, and where everybody gets a ballot, to what like Oklahoma has, which I think is a fairly common system now, um, where you can vote absentee. You don't have to have an excuse. You don't have to say, oh, I'm gonna be out of state or whatever, out of the country. You can just get an absentee ballot if you want to vote that way, Um, but you have to request it. And so um, he, he himself votes by absentee Re- requests a ballot, I think, from Florida, and, uh, and votes that way. So he's said, uh, oh, absentee's fine. It's this universal mail-in balloting. But, but other than that, yes, you, you, you summed it up well. Um, the organizational changes have, are, are real, and um, they have included um, getting rid of sorting machines um, that some people have said are outdated. You know, That's an argument I'm not obviously an expert on. Um, the, a limit on, on how, how much overtime letter carriers, I think, and another postal office uh, uh, workers can take, um, which, from what I've read, in some circumstances, has led to carriers not being able to get all of the mail on their routes in time, you know, and, and they can't, because they can't take overtime, they can't go back and get letters and then go back out. They have they're kind of stuck with whatever they had, you know, left the, the, the you know the facility with that morning, and um, the other organiz- quote organizational changes. This one about removing blue boxes, you know, the boxes that have been all over, and some of these changes have been around, have been going on for many years, and and would be important to any you know huge organization like the post office. Um, in in terms of efficiency, you know. Huge organization, and we all know that um, you know, the mail, the use of the mail has evolved significantly just like so many other big businesses with the onset of the internet, you know. Fewer people mail letters, people email each other. Now they have had, you know, a huge uptick in packages because of you know, the the surge in uh, online buying, so um, Sorry to ramble, but I, I should say too. You know, when I was in um, in Washington, um, and this was both of these times were, were during the Obama administration, there were uh, proposals from the Postal Service to shut down a lot of post offices around the country, um, including I think close to a hundred in Oklahoma. And um, I remember looking at the list one time. You know, I do not recognize any of some of these towns you know, and I'm really familiar with Oklahoma. I've been all over Oklahoma, and they're in such small towns, I didn't even recognize the names of them. But they wound up scrapping that idea. It was very, very controversial. I think they were going to close about 3,000 post offices nationwide, you know, including that hundred or so in Oklahoma, and they wound up just reducing hours at them. So anyway, the post office has problems going back a long way. You know, I don't know how much, um, I don't think we've got any real data, especially like in the Oklahoma area, about delays. The House Democrats, you know, when they were voting on this bill last weekend on Saturday, released some figures that they said showed absolutely, you know, um, these delays since these organizational changes have been um, going on uh, uh, under this new postmaster this year.
1: Yeah, well, and, and it, it would be a, a real problem, I think, for rural areas in Oklahoma where, you know, the post office is going to be utilized heavily by folks who don't have another way uh, to get mail, maybe because carriers from uh, Amazon or FedEx or whatever don't drive out to such rural areas.
0: But nobody but, nobody is, is, is making the argument that the post office isn't important. You know, this argument is all about and both sides say it's a manufactured, you know, crisis here. That's a totally political crisis. Oh yeah. Not 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 real. Nobody. Everybody stipulates to the fact that the post office is important. You know, it's like, let's all preface this by saying we know the post office is important, especially to people in rural areas. They have no, as you say, they you know, they, you don't see Amazon trucks out on these rural roads. You know, so. That's that's kind of not an issue here. How important the post office is, and the other thing that's been sort of interesting about this um, is that you you know a risk I think that some of the, the Democrats have been taking is you don't want to like undermine the post office. You don't want people to lose faith in it. You know, so you kind of have to be careful about what you say as you're as you're you know having this conversation about the organizational changes and their their funding problems. You know. Um, so you hear a lot of them like Kendra Horn will preface, preface, uh, Representative Kendra Horn, uh, Oklahoma City uh, uh, Democrat is in the U.S. House, will preface a lot of what they say by saying, now I know the post office is capable of delivering. You know, I know the letter carriers are doing a great job. Because you can't undermine the whole operation or people just you know, lose even, you know, they might lose even more business. So you know, the, the question became, can they mail, because of the pandemic, a lot more people are gonna mail in ballots, you know, even in you know states like Oklahoma. We've seen it, we know it to be true. With these organizational changes, can the post office handle the the extra volume? And and you know the post office itself is saying, yes, we can. I mean they handle billions of Mother's Day cards and Christmas cards, you know, it's not it's not it's not a volume you know the the measurement that had even if everybody in America voted that way we could handle it so um, it 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 it, then it's you know an argument about the money well they need 25 billion dollars well and then the Republicans go we we gave them a 10 billion dollar line of credit in the cares act that they haven't even tapped yet so Again, it's just sort of hard to, it's one of those issues that is, you know, it's just kind of hard to get at exactly
1: Yeah, it what's seems real very, and what's political. Right, right. Very political, very big and complicated. And you mentioned, you know, about and more folks mailing in ballots. And we did see that in Oklahoma yeah. uh, during the June 30th primary, roughly 100. 100- and this runoff. Yeah, and and the recent runoff, you know, roughly 141,000 absentee ballots were requested, but only 100,000 were returned June 30th. And of those, about 3.6% were rejected because they were late. Uh, And what did the numbers look like, if you you know off the top of your head, for this recent August 25th runoff election? Were they still higher than normal? Uh, uh,
0: Yes, they were much higher than normal in terms of ballots requested and returned. You know, we don't, we won't know, I don't think for, um, you know, a few days probably how many of those are rejected for being too late, but another thing that came out during this whole, you know, post office controversy was the letter, were the letters that were written to um, election board officials by the post office, most, most of them in the country, I think there were 46 letters sent out, and they were all very specific to that state's deadlines for returning ballots, and You know, the post office argues we've sent these letters before. We sent them in May before this, you know, quote, crisis happened, before this new postmaster took over. What we're trying to tell states is you should leave enough time for people to get a ballot and return it. And in Oklahoma, you can request a ballot seven days before the election. So let's say it takes you two to three days to get it. Then you sit on it for a day or two. Well, you're cutting it pretty close if you're going to try to get that thing in. So, what the Postal Service said in these letters to states, and specifically to Oklahoma, people should be mailing their ballots a week before. They shouldn't be requesting them a week before. And there was a press, Horn had a press conference. couple of weeks ago now about the, the post office problems, and uh, I asked her and I asked a uh, uh, leader of the letter carrier of the union here in uh, this part of the, the state, you know, when would you mail your ballot for the November 3rd election? They both said October 27th, which is exactly a week before. So they're on board with that. I don't know really what their complaint is with that, but that was partly... That was part of what was used in this, you know, um, controversy by the Democrats to say these organizational changes are mucking everything up. Well, even under, you know, if you go back a year two years, that's a tight deadline. You know, organizational change is not Thinking that people are gonna be able to request a ballot a week before and, and have everybody get it in on time is, is quite hopeful. That's quite optimistic, you know. They obviously did not. There were 30, you know, you talk about, and, and, and it's true, you know, that every single vote can matter in a race. You mentioned 3.6% of the ballots got there too late for the June 30th primary in Oklahoma. That was 3,600 votes. 3,600 votes were not tallied because the ballots arrived too late, and we should, uh, I should throw in here that the deadline for receiving ballot is the same time the polls close on election day, which is 7 p.m. And I was talking to um, Paul zerix about this, the uh, state election board secretary, this week. And I, I actually didn't know this. I, you know, I, I just kind of assumed that um, um, the ballots came in on to the election boards. You know, the post, post the letter carrier brought them one, you know, one shipment in on the regular delivery time. That's not the case. Election board officials, county election board officials, actually go to post offices to get them as they come in. You know, like. Um, He was saying that I think for the primary, Tulsa County um, Election Board officials went to the Tulsa Postal Facility four different times that day, including, I think, pretty close to the deadline to get every single ballot.
1: that is definitely a different picture than the one I had in my mind of, you know, a yeah. USPS driver, like frantically trying to make it to the county election board. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and, and, me too. and talk uh, here locally, what does the relationship look like between county election boards and election officials and the post office and, and folks who are working there?
0: That's a good question. And, and that's something that Paul Xerox uh, uh, addressed. Uh, he said, we have a great working relationship. And that's, you know, um, perceptive question because that's he, that's that Tulsa County story that I just told you he used as an example of the kind of relationship that they have that they work so closely together the, you know, the, the facilities are, are willing to let the county officials come in there as many times as they need to to get as, as many and they, they do everything they can to try to find those ballots, you know and and all that, you know all that mail that they're uh, trying to process, uh, in those days leading up to an election they do everything they can make every effort they can to get those ballots to election boards
1: right and we're expecting expecting to see this vote by mail trend continue and so you know last question for you what is the advice for folks who still want to vote by mail because of safety concerns with COVID-19
0: get your ballot early and get it in early you know that's everybody keeps saying that you know um Xerox uh the election board put out statements about that. Everybody's putting out statements. Everybody involved in in voting and in, in, in you know kind of civics wants these votes to count, and they are just pressing upon people. You know, get this done. You can actually if you request a ballot and you just figure I've kind of blown it. I'm probably not going to get this thing in on time and through the U.S. mail. Um, I've waited till the Saturday before whatever. You can drop it off at uh, your county election board. You have to show an ID or something. I think that's that's all you have to do. But you can take it to the election board and drop it off. But if, yeah, if you want your vote to count, then then get it in. You know, everybody's recommending a mail it on October 27th by October 27th. You probably know who you're going to vote for. You know, by then a week out. Um, there are a lot of people who make up their mind at the last minute. But in this pandemic, you might not have that luxury. You know, you might have to make yourself, you know, fill in that ballot and just, you know, make make your decisions uh, by October 27th.
1: Right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for talking with me about the U.S. Postal Service.
0: I'm glad to do it, Kayla.
2: Thanks for joining us this week. You can read all these stories and more every day in The Oklahoman and at Oklahoman.com. Check back next Friday for a new episode.